please give your attention to the reading of God's word. A reading from Paul's letter to the Ephesians, chapter 5. Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children, and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. But sexual immorality and all impurity or covetousness must not even be named among you, as is proper among saints. Let there be no filthiness, nor foolish talk, nor crude joking, which are out of place, but instead let there be thanksgiving. For you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure or who is covetous, that is, an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Therefore, do not become partners with them. For at one time you were darkness, But now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. For the fruit of light is found in all that is good and right and true. And try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. Take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them. For it is shameful even to speak of the things that they do in secret. But when anything is exposed by the light, it becomes visible. For anything that becomes visible is light. Therefore it says, Awake, O sleeper, and arise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. Look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise, making the best use of the time, because the days are evil. Therefore, do not be foolish, But understand what the will of the Lord is. And do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery. But be filled with the Spirit, addressing one another in psalms, in hymns, and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart, giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father In the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. This is the word of the Lord. It's very important how we hear God's word. Jesus told his disciples to take care how you hear. Later on, Paul said to the Galatians, Does he who supplies the Spirit and works miracles among you do so by the works of the law, or by hearing and with faith. The Holy Spirit works miracles among us when God's word is faithfully preached, when we hear with faith. Therefore, it's important for us as Christians to not simply approach the word with some sort of haphazard way of listening. Rather, we ought to be like students in our favorite class, with our favorite teacher leaning forward 
anticipating something to be told to us that will change our lives. That's how we are supposed to hear God's word. And so when we come to a text like today's passage that is so familiar to us, even at the onset, we ought to be on our guard and, pres- and not presume that we know exactly what Paul's talking about or that we've heard every part of this passage before. Um, in this church, we have preached, I have preached through this passage already twice. And I came to this in my preparation these last few days and thought, there's something here that I haven't seen before. And I was asking the Lord to help me see that. And one of the things that I've become impressed of as of late is that in American Christianity, we have wholly discounted the warnings of Scripture. And the warnings of Scripture are not trivial. They're not trite. They're not included to simply provide some sort of theological material to understand the nature of salvation. Warnings are given that they might be used by us. So many of us have invented a false view of God that relegates him to only loving in, a, in our twisted definition of loving, and therefore all of his warnings are mute to us because we, we have already presupposed that he would never do that. American evangelicalism has bought into a doctrine that people go to hell because they choose to go there, whereas Jesus warned his hearers in the book of Matthew He said to his disciples when they were going to go out and preach the gospel, he said to them, do not fear those who can kill the body, but fear the one who will throw both body and soul into hell. Who throws people into hell? God throws people into hell. And I would suppose that for the majority of American Christians, they don't like that idea, that that makes them a little squirmish And I think the word would correct us there. And I think Paul, writing to a church, wanted to make sure his hearers did not presume to be new creations, but gave them ample warning that they not, as I said, presume to be believers, but that they make their calling and election sure. That they make sure that they are not deceived, continuing on in sin, all the while pretending or supposing themselves to be Christians. This is a heavy passage. But what it says about the dangers of hell, as we're going to look at in a few minutes, actually reveals a great and glorious thing, which is the nature of Christian sanctification. As I'm hoping to show today, Christian sanctification is not merely the elimination of certain sins, but rather is the sort of renewed heart and renewed mind which sees God for who he is, which is a gift, the sight of God, such that these former sins become unappealing and detestable indeed. That's what I believe Paul is saying by his command of the word thanksgiving. So it's my aim today to show that because of Christ's sacrifice, those who have been made new creations in him, can fully and forever forsake their former sins. I am using the F letter for 
alliteration, those who have become new creations in Jesus Christ can fully and forever forsake their former sins. You do not have to remain trapped in sin. You are given a new life in Jesus Christ. And not only do you not have to remain trapped in former sins, if you are a Christian, you cannot remain trapped in former sins. Why? Because of the gracious, great work of Jesus Christ. And that's exactly what Paul is doing. He is saying that the Spirit who is renewing you, as we saw last week in Ephesians 4.23, to be renewed in the spirit of our mind, the Holy Spirit is renewing us and he's causing us to put on the new self which will walk in love. That is, it will walk in response to God and it will walk in light. It will not participate in the deeds of darkness. So I want to look at five things. First, the great offering of Jesus Christ which is the foundation and chief aim of all Christian sanctification is, is to recognize and glorify that work to have all of our sanctification rooted in the work of Jesus Christ. I want to look at an application of what we saw last week in Ephesians 4, some descriptions of the old self versus the new self. And then I want to move into Paul's warnings in verse 5 and 6 about the dangers of idolatry. And idolatry can be understood not simply as making a physical idol, but as the forming of anything whether it be physical or, or a deed, anything which would be raised up in your affections above God. Then I want to look at what Paul means when he says that we ought to step into the light and how what I believe uh, here is shown to be an evangelistic aspect to our behavior. That there's going to be something that these Ephesian Christians are supposed to do which will actually expose those who are in darkness around them and that those who were in darkness will be brought into light just as they were. And then finally, I want to look at what it means to be led by the Spirit taking a careful look at Paul's warning against drunkenness and debauchery. So, continuing to describe this new life which is in Christ, Paul reminds the Christians in Ephesus, his readers, of the foundation for all of their sanctification and all of their efforts at putting to death sin. This is supposed to be a response to God's love. We know, according to Paul's other writings, that we did not love God first God loved us first while we were still at enmity with him. While we were still opposed to God, God sent his son to die upon the cross. This is the wonderful nature of our historic objective faith. Neither you nor I will ever obtain a time machine, and neither if we did obtain a time machine could we cause something else to take place than what has taken place 2,000 years ago. Jesus Christ was crucified objectively 2,000 years prior. And at this time, we merely respond to what has taken place. The saints of old looked forward in anticipation. We look backward in reflection. At the right time and at the proper time, Christ was crucified. And while he was crucified, we were still not yet even conceived, but as we were born, we were at enmity with him, and through the gospel, we can be redeemed to him. 
So all of the Christian life, everything that Paul will, about, will, will be discussing in this passage is a response to the love of God. We did not love God first, but God loved us first. And therefore, our love is not an originating love. We cannot obey God. We cannot love God without being loved by God. This is why the new birth is so important is because before the new birth, we cannot even see the kingdom of God nor begin to participate in it, as Paul says in these verses, that those who are trapped in sin have no partnership with the kingdom of God. And so we see that the beginning of all efforts at sanctification must rest in Jesus Christ. He says in verse 1, Therefore be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love. How are we to walk in love? We're to walk in the sort of love as what we've received. As he continues, as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us. A fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. While I was putting the worship set list together last night, reading over the songs, thinking about what those words said I was overwhelmed with joy because a sinless Savior died. My sinful soul is counted free. Have you ever thought about what you're saying there? You're testifying that you're sinful. It's a confession of sins. It's a recognition that there was a sinless Savior died. And because that has taken place, God who is just is satisfied. There is no exemption of God's justice in the cross of Christ. His wrath was fully meted out to the Lord against our sin, which he took upon himself. And indeed, as Paul says in Corinthians, excuse me, 2 Corinthians 5, that he made him who knew no sin to become sin for us. That Jesus didn't even just look like sin, he fully embodied in his body the penalty that we deserved. This is the beginning of all efforts at putting to death sin. If you do not start, Christian, with this root of knowing that Jesus Christ has made you a new creation and that your sins, which you still to this day love some of them, those sins have been paid for and have been totally satisfied by the blood of Jesus Christ. It is only in that vein that you can ever attempt to put to death those sins. The gospel is not a self-improvement project. It is the announcement of full, faith, of full pardon on the basis of faith in Christ's work. And in that full pardon, we can put to death sin. So, all motivation for walking in love must be a response to the revealed work of Jesus Christ. This is the chief tactic of the enemy in the moment of your temptation is to move the cross very distant in your memory unless you are dwelling upon the fact that you have already received the A plus on the test, then you cannot pass the test in the moment. God put forward Jesus Christ as a propitiation for our sins. That is to say, Christ was not simply taken advantage of and God then saw what the Jews and the Romans were doing and said, oh, I can make something good come out of this. During the Sunday school hour, John Gray was mentioning Joseph, and one of the things that Joseph precedes Christ in is that when his brothers come to Joseph and are fearful that he is going to reject them, Joseph says, you meant this for evil, but God meant it for good. 
we see in Acts 2 that Peter, as he's speaking to those in Jerusalem, he says that you offered him up, but actually he was offered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. God put forward Jesus Christ. It wasn't the Son's response to the Father's pleading alone. All of God put all of God the Son forward as the, ple- the atonement offering, the propitiation, that which would assuage the wrath of God toward his people. In Christ, therefore, God has completely reconciled his people to himself. He's made them new creations. He's given them his spirit, and they must simply walk in that love. Because we are transformed by his love, therefore, we now can walk in love. And indeed, as we're going to see, must. It's a logical conclusion that we walk in love. And this is how we walk in love. Love is defined by God in the giving of the Ten Commandments that Jesus reiterated as loving the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all of your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. And the second commandment is like it to walk in love. It is to love your neighbor as you love yourself. This is the Christian walk. Everything under our entire life view, everything within the way we think, the way we act, what we say, how we treat our friends, how we work our job, all of it is supposed to be offered up to God as a pleasing sacrifice. As, as a means of our worship that every moment we would live in response to what Jesus Christ has done. That's why we're told to meditate upon his word day and night and to pray continually. Why? Because the Christian life cannot be lived apart from a persistent communion with the Holy Spirit through his scriptures. Does he who supply the spirit of God and work miracles among you do so by the works of the law? or by hearing and with faith. And we hear with faith when we hear God's word in our head, and he supplies the spirit in those moments. That is the only way that I've known how the scriptures command us to walk out our sanctification. It is to rely upon the Holy Spirit who comes to us through God's word. So, hearkening back to what Paul had said in the prior chapter, he then begins to give commands to the Ephesians, looking at some details of the old self and the new self. He commands them to forsake their former sins. He says in verse 3, sexual immorality and all impurity and covetousness must not even be named among you. And then he says, as is proper among saints, let there be no filthiness, nor foolish talk, nor crude joking, which are out of place. These words are very heavy. I am often very guilty of foolish talk. Now, I don't know and I don't believe Paul has in in mind the sort of things which would be jokes. However, he does have in mind clearly crude jokes. These are out of place for Christians, as Paul says. Instead, let there be thanksgiving. Paul's commands highlight the difference between the old self and the new self, and his words illustrate what is the new norm for Christians. I I pick up on two phrases here as he says, as is proper among saints and which are out of place. Before Christ, these sins were the common experience 
of the Ephesians, those who he's writing to. These were things they engaged in and adopted and received. After Christ, however, after they have received a new self, it is not a harmony any longer. These behaviors are not proper among saints and are out of place. Subtly, one of the the chief places where our sanctification is cut short is we believe that we are trapped in our former sins. Though we do still have an old self which must be put off and put to death, it is not supposed to reign over us. And so for those who are caught in sin, we subtly believe that Christ cannot redeem us from these things. That is not true according to what Paul is commanding. These things, the sexual immorality, the impurity, the covetousness, the foolish talk, filthiness, crude joking, all of these things should be like oil and water for the Christian. Have you ever seen oil and water mixed up in a jar? If you have Italian dressing at home, you shake it up, the, the oil and the vinegar and anything else that's in there, it, it, it makes a solution, not even really chemically speaking, it makes a mixture But as soon as you let it sit there for more than a minute, it's immediately separated again. This is what it should be for the new self and these former sins. However, what I want to illustrate, what I thought was interesting about reading this passage again, was seeing something. And it was this, Christian sanctification is not merely the ending or elimination of sin, but rather Christian sanctification necessarily includes seeing God. And the reason for that, as we saw last week, is without seeing God for who he is and being satisfied in him and knowing in him and having a joy of the Spirit, you will look for other things to satisfy. And that's exactly what Paul had said in the prior chapter and is now reiterating. Instead of these things, you ought to put in place thanksgiving. It is not merely the removal of old habits, but you must establish and cultivate new godly habits. Paul therefore says that thanksgiving should be put in their place. And the question we must ask is, why thanksgiving? I have a tradition that my parents gave to me as I was growing up, that at Thanksgiving dinner, we took the time around the table to recite or to repeat or to to share what we were thankful for in that year. And as I was reading a commentary, this, this idea came to me. The commentary was Matthew Henry, who I, uh, if you are looking for a commentary, John Gill and Matthew Henry are, are commentaries par excellence. They cannot be beat, especially Gill. Um, and Matthew Henry made mention that thanksgiving for the Christian is not merely the recitation of things already called to mind. But actually, the very act of thanksgiving is a refreshment to the soul of the Christian. Why? It's because God does a thousand things for you every day which you never think about. This morning, I woke up and stepped into a shower, and the water pressure caused me to thank God because of the warm... Now, if I had a bad shower this morning, I still should thank God. But God gives us a million graces all of the time, none of which we acknowledge or thank him for. So thanksgiving is not just the vocalization of things that are already in your heart and mind. The act of thanksgiving calls forth praise. 
It refreshes the Christian. That's why weekly worship is a commandment. God put it in his word that we not forsake the assembly. Why? Because it's in the assembly that we're reminded God didn't just save me, but he saved you. And he's put me together in this community. And through you, I can see some aspect of the work of Christ that apart from seeing you, I can't see. The point is this, that as we went around the table every Thanksgiving, while I was speaking, some new things were, oh, right, I should be thankful for that. And I should be thankful for that. It's a wonderful tradition. And um, if you celebrate Thanksgiving, I heartily recommend it. Why? The reason is there will be things in your own family that you don't even know about, which will be expressed at that Thanksgiving dinner. The point is that Paul is telling his believers, his readers, people he presumes to be Christians, to end these sins and replace them with something else. Therefore, we understand Christian sanctification is not just putting to death sins. It is the establishing of the worship of God. That's what I believe he then continues to say. The heart that is full of thanksgiving is satisfied in God. Test yourself in this. Can you express thanks to God and not feel something about the nature of his goodness, the nature of the grace that he's given to you? The very act of expressing that thanks calls forth things to mind which you have never acknowledged him for. And so as we sing occasionally, some churches actually sing the doxology every service. We just sing it a lot. Praise God from whom all blessings flow. That's, that's the point of Christian, the Christian life. It's to praise God and to be satisfied in him. Each of these sins as listed flows from a heart that is not satisfied in God, that does not see God, and is in love with the sins that they commit. Why? Because in those sins, there is a temporary and fleeting passing pleasure. And for us to be thankful to God, we must root those sins out. Establishing thanksgiving in their place, therefore requires a continual rediscovery of contentment in the life and freedom that's given to you in Christ. Again, not to overwhelmingly share from my experience, but to share my heart with you. One time I was on a flight and I had just begun to read the Westminster um, Shorter Catechism and I was about to take off. And it just so happened that by the time I got in the catechism to the place where it dealt with the providence and sovereignty of God, our plane started to take off. And it was a wonderful moment. You can't stop this plane. When you're driving, you think you're in control. It's all the other drivers you have to worry about for the most part. But while on this runway, I had come to the place, it was God's grace to me in the moment, to be overwhelmed with the knowledge that he had been looking out for me my whole life. And I rarely acknowledged his providence. The point is, for thanksgiving to be a persistent thing, it requires us to rediscover what we've been given in Christ. So Paul then immediately warns them of the lie, of the deception of continuing in their former sins. That is to say, he presumes that his readers are Christians, and that presupposition or that presupposing ought to be examined. 
Paul warns them not to walk as they formerly did, and then he contrasts the old and new self. He says in verse 5, For you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure, who who is covetous, that is an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of God, kingdom of Christ and God. Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Those who continually persist in these sins have no share in the things of God, neither in this life nor at the judgment seat. No qualifiers on these statements. Those who persist being. He says, for you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral. It's very interesting. He does not say those who do sexually immoral things. He describes them as being sexually immoral. You may be sure that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure or who, it is, who is covetous, that is an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. The reason he does this is very clear. God, in his word, states that he hates all evildoers. Remember earlier when I said that we in America have believed in a God that is contrary to the God of Scripture, that we take exception with the God who throws sinners into hell. It's the reason, the reason is, is because we have failed to understand God's word. In Psalm 5, God says he is indignant with those who do evil, those who work evil. Jesus warns his disciples that at the last judgment, he will cast away those who are sinning, saying, depart from me, you workers of iniquity. Those who continue to do iniquity, clearly according to 5 and 6 and the rest of all of Scripture, are inside the wrath of God. That is to say that those who are defined by being sexually immoral are in this group. So I want you to imagine, if you will, a large circle And that large circle is defined as those who are under the wrath of God. And in that circle, Paul is putting everyone who is sexually immoral, everyone who is covetous. The question, therefore, is what about the Christian? And I think Paul answers this. But I I want to press home upon you the entire scope of Scripture that God gives terrible warnings against those who are idolaters and who are sexually immoral and those who are impure. And the question is this, if God should mark iniquities, who could stand? And the answer is no one could stand. No one could stand if God should mark iniquities. So the question is, am I sexually immoral? Am I covetous? Am I one of the sons of disobedience? Or is there something different? Paul warns his hearers, who we know are the saints at Ephesus. He writes to a group of people. 
And that revelation of God's word through Paul's hand to that group of people is coming to those who are presumably Christians. They are those who profess to be Christians. Paul at one point says, I don't judge those outside the church. It is those inside the church who, are, who we are to judge. So this word about the sexually immoral is clearly not talking about the Greeks. It's not talking about the Romans. It's talking about the saints at Ephesus. He says to them, be sure of this. Everyone who is sexually immoral has no inheritance in the kingdom of God. The reason that Paul does this, this is clear from all of the scope of Scripture, is that warnings against God's wrath for God's people are a valid reason to not sin. Let me just try to make it clear. Because we do not believe in a God who judges sin, who will send people to hell, we therefore have made light of his wrath against sin. And because we do not honor and worship and love the God who sends people to hell, we subtly begin to make very little use of the warnings that God gives to his people about the judgment. Paul writes to the Christians to warn them because warnings are a valid means of fighting temptation. This is, this is very clear. Jesus warned in the Sermon on the Mount. He said, it is better to pluck your eye out than to enter life. Right? It's better to enter life blind and maimed than to go to hell. So the point is this, that God's warnings to Christians have real bite. The reason why is because he writes his book to his people, those who are presumed to be his people. And just as we know there can be false shepherds, there can be false sheep. And so Paul is very zealous for the souls in the city of Ephesus that none of them escape through their Christian life, supposedly Christian life, and love the things which are going to destroy them. He is very careful to warn his hearers. He does not put any qualifiers on these statements. But what must we say is the right application of these warnings? Should we say, because I did this sin yesterday, therefore I am this, and I believe Paul would say, no, that's the wrong use of his warning. The right use is by analogy. And we see that from the rest of what he says. He warns them against being deceived by their enemy. And their enemy is the one who would deceive them with empty words. There is a, a great movie. Um, I think it's called The Usual Suspects. Is that it? And there is a quote in that movie, which is almost inescapable, but one of the characters at some point in the movie says that the greatest trick the devil ever pulled was convincing the world that he doesn't exist. Who would be the deceiver of Christians or so-called Christians? The deceiver would say to so-called Christians, you won't ever be judged for that sin. If you continue in this sin, it will be totally fine. That would be what the deceiver is saying. Verse 6, let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. The deceiver, your enemy, would love for you to be deluded and sleepy through your Christian life. 
and in love with sin, all the while presuming to love Christ. Because of this great wrath, the great wrath that is coming upon the sons of disobedience, Paul then warns the Ephesians not to join them. He calls them sons of light. He calls those who continue to do these things sons of disobedience. And then he assumes that they aren't sons of disobedience. This is why the warning is not terrifying to the point of despair, but terrifying to the point of joy. It is because through God's work, as he announced, we can forsake these sins fully and forever. Look at what he says in verse 7. Therefore, don't become partakers with them. He addresses them saying, don't go do those things. And he gives them a command, and the assumption is, I can obey that command by the Holy Spirit. I do not have to become a partaker with them because I'm told not to become a partaker. And then look at what he announces to them. So the gospel is not just the announcement of the free offer of pardon, but as we begin to walk with the Lord Jesus, we also hear encouraging words through God's word, which are these, that you are a son of light. He says, for at one time you were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of the light. Verse 9, For the fruit of light is found in all that is good and right and true, and try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. Paul desires to encourage them towards holiness and godliness, and therefore he reminds them now of what they are by the grace of God. He says, This is what the sons of disobedience do but you are not sons of disobedience. You are now light in the Lord. What a wonderful, wonderful promise and privilege. Throughout all of the New Testament, whenever a warning against eternal wrath is given to God's people, the apostle usually includes a phrase, we are convinced of better things about you. That's a bold statement to say. We are convinced of better. You were formerly in darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. The Christian which is truly in light, the one who walks in light, does not hear these warnings and shrink back towards condemnation, but says all the more, I'm never going to get near that cliff. I have this rule when I'm hiking. I don't hike with people who are given to jokes. I don't play around with, you know that thing that men do with each other where they like kind of hold on to them and shake them over the edge? I don't hike with people like that. <laughs> and I think your Christian walk should be like that. We, we snatch those who are trapped in sin, hating even the garment that is stained by the flesh. That's the Christian walk. We ought to hear these warnings and not presume that we escape the judgment given in the warning if we continue. And since we have been called to walk in light, we make every opportunity, we make use of not only the promises, blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God, we also make use of the warnings. For everyone may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure or who is covetous has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ. And you say to yourself, I believe I have an inheritance in that kingdom. I believe I've tasted of it now. I don't want to drink of the cup of demons because I want to drink of the cup of Christ. 
That's the way we make use of the warnings of Scripture. We can't have half of the Bible. And the Bible contains hundreds of warnings as well as promises. We ought to make use of both of them. God's miracle, therefore, of turning darkness into light becomes the basis for our moment-by-moment obedience in every part of life. For the Christian, the ending of sin is not earning righteousness, but rather it is the working out of that righteousness in their daily lives. He says, do not partake with them. He says, don't do that in the future because of what you are. He says, don't partake in what the sons of disobedience are doing. You're not allowed to be in darkness because you are children of light. Do you see how the heart, which is despairing, would flip this? It would say, in order to know that I have a participation in the kingdom of Christ, I must put to death these sins, and therefore I will have a participation. Whereas what Paul is saying is he's saying, don't go do the things that those in darkness do because you're actually in the light. That is the gospel announcement, not of just the possibility of sanctification, but of the necessity. It's, it's a logical outworking. Because you're in the light, walk as children of the light. I just want to look at this verse clearly again. For at one time you were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. And you could insert the word, therefore, Therefore, walk as children of the light. So God's miracle that he accomplished, sanctification, justification, that miracle then is applied through the rest of our lives. Not only should we ourselves shine as those who are in the light, but our shining, our doing of good deeds, should expose those who are in darkness around us. And those who are in darkness around us will then become light Verse 11, take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them. For it is shameful even to speak of the things that they do in secret, but when anything is exposed by the light, it becomes visible. If you've taken a, even a college-level course in physics, this is actually the way that things work. The only reason you see anything at all is because light hit something, lots of things, and is now bouncing off of that thing into your eyes. At the time that Paul wrote this, the Greek and Roman perspective on optics was actually that eyes kind of find things. You can think of it kind of like that, that guy in uh, X-Men with the, the Cyclops, that some light beams out from them and therefore they see. Paul here is saying that the only reason anyone can see anything is because light has come and hit it. And so for the Christian, we understand that those things which are in darkness, those things which can't be known, those things which are done in secret, secret cults, sins committed in private, those things are darkness. But the things which are done in public ought to be exposed by the light. And as they live as little lights and move around in a dark world, they will be what Jesus told them to be. You are the light of the world. You don't hide your light because that would be participating light with darkness, but rather you let that light shine. And through your shining example, some who are in darkness now will turn to the Lord. Verse 14, for anything that becomes visible is light. Therefore it says, awake, O sleeper, and arise from the dead, and Christ will shine upon you. What a wonderful promise. 
I need his shining upon me. So Paul's command to the Christian is to go out and be lights in the world and through their conduct expose the works of darkness. Not just in some sort of casual way, but actively opposing sin in the culture. Not just through their silent obedience, though that is true, it will be exposed, but also through their active witnessing and participation in good deeds in the world around them. Through word and deed, Christians ought to be the living antithesis. What does an antithesis mean? It means the direct opposite. Whatever the world loves, Christians ought to be the opposite of that. Not because we're defined by the world's loves, but because the world is opposed to God. And so for Christians, as we live in the world, we ought to shine in such a way as those in the world are opposed to us. We ought to expose the works of darkness through our words and through our deeds. So Paul then again reminds them to be circumspect, to have an awareness of what they're doing because of the shortness of time. He says, verse 15, Look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise, making the best use of the time because the days are evil. This verse right here is one of the most convicting verses to me. You want to know why? Because it's very easy for me in my young state of sanctification to be on my guard when I know certain sins are around, right? Isn't this the experience? But when I start drifting towards Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, Reddit, and I start going off and reading books on like auto manual repair, which I'm never going to do in my life, (laughs) and I start looking at, okay, what are the techniques of the 18th century bonsai masters? This, this to me is what Paul has. Now, I'm not saying hobbies are bad. What I'm saying is there is a sort of walk of life that is idolatry in idleness. And that's what I believe Paul has in mind. He says, the days are evil. Don't presume like the world you live in is neutral to you. Make use of the time. Be wise with how you walk. Be circumspect about your life. Consider the end of your days and think about at my deathbed, will I have wished to spend more time on Reddit? And I'm, I'm preaching to myself right now, but I believe all of us, if we were to take Paul's words to be circumspect about how we walk, to be on guard, like I said last week, to have a wartime mentality where every trig, a twig snap and every leaf crumple would set us on alarm, ought to be, I believe, the way we live. We ought to be wise because the days are evil and they're short. I'm reminded of John Piper's father's banner over his workstation or his desk at, at his home. It said, it had a wonderful quote, which I love. One life will soon be over. Uh, sorry, one life will soon be past. Only what's done for Christ will last. Amazing. An amazing motivation. So, all of us live in a world that is called darkness. It is called an evil world. All of us, therefore, must be wise. We must allow the Spirit to renew our minds such that we move towards wisdom and we must be on guard. We ought to have Spirit-renewed minds, as he said last chapter, Scripture-informed minds so as to obey God's Word. Christ, therefore, is no token king. What I mean by this is we call Christ our Lord 
and our king, but oftentimes we live as if his kingdom is trivial or it's a token. It's, it's a, there's a vestige of it's like a kingdom. There's a metaphor and he's kind of like a ruler or kind of like a, a lord. No, he is no token king. His kingdom is forever and it is full and it is totalizing. Therefore, every part of our life ought to be lived in response to him. We ought to acknowledge his reign and leadership in all parts of life. Therefore, as his loyal subjects, we want to lovingly, willingly do his will. We are not looking for in the Christian life a sort of sanctification that is kind of white knuckle, just holding on to not do sin. We want the sort of spirit-informed, scripture-informed sanctification which joyfully loves to do the will of the king. It's kind of like one of those old you know, movies set in a middle eight, you know, medieval period, whether it's like Lord of the Rings or King Arthur. It's the sort of kneeling before his throne when we're bringing him tribute, not the sort of kneeling before his throne groveling for mercy. He's glad to give us mercy, and therefore we're glad to obey. So, finally, Paul contrasts the old self and the new self one final time, telling them not to engage in deluded passions. He says, do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart, giving thanks always for everything to God the Father in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. The old self, which is to be put off, loves to be filled with wine. Now you may say, when I was an unbeliever, I never liked drinking. What do you mean? He doesn't just mean the sort of drinking or drunkenness which is accomplished by alcohol, although he specifically names that because it is so common. He means anything that is a deluding passion. If you fill up a glass of wine and you continue to fill it, what happens? It will overflow, and the effect of the wine will be to spill over. What's put in the glass doesn't stay in the glass. Some translations say, instead of debauchery, dissipation or loss. What he means to say is that those who are lovers of wine obey wine. They drink it so as to excuse their behaviors. It's very dangerous even as a Christian to engage in drinking if you are not circumspect. Notice this verse does not bind consciences. It does not say, do not drink wine. It says, do not be drunk with wine. Therefore, as we will in just a minute or two, uh, we will take wine at the table for the Lord handed us wine, but we are not to be drunk with wine. Some of us as Christians who have found a new found liberty in the knowledge that we can drink go too far and we say, oh, it doesn't matter. I'm drinking to the Lord. This is just jovial. All the while becoming drunk and doing things we ought not to do. Alcohol is permissible for the Christian. It is still dangerous for the Christian, if not held with wisdom. You do not hand a four-year-old a rifle. Likewise, alcohol is a mocker and a brawler. The scripture is clear upon these things, and he's writing not to the world. He's writing to the Christians. So what we understand from this, that Christians can get drunk from wine, and it's wrong. 
Rather, they ought to be filled with the Spirit. Imagine that glass again. As you continue to fill it with wine and it overflows, the same idea is to be filled with the Spirit. Paul says they ought to be filled with the Spirit so that they obey the Spirit, and the Spirit's effect flows out of them and through them. That is what the Christian is supposed to do. The new self delights in this. If you are new in Christ Jesus, the, the effect of the Spirit should be a joy to you. It not only produces joy and freedom from sin, but it produces, as Paul said earlier, thanksgiving. And that's exactly what we are about to do at this table. The heart that is filled with the Spirit is overflowing in praise. And not only, as we said earlier, not only is thanksgiving the result of thinking about God's grace, but the act of thanksgiving itself refreshes the believer. Why? The Holy Spirit is supposed to flow. You're supposed to be filled with and be impacted by and led by the Holy Spirit. So, because Christ's love has transformed us, let us forever forsake our former sins and walk in the freedom that he has purchased with his blood. Let's close. Father, we thank you for your word. We pray that the promises and prohibitions, that the warnings, the curses that are uttered in your word would have teeth as we read them. Not so that we would be caused to run away in fear, but that in fear we would run to you. As your word says, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Lord, we ask, just as James taught us to, to ask for wisdom, Lord, we ask for wisdom. We ask that you would reform our moral sensibilities, which would balk at a God who judges sin or who are uncomfortable with the fact that you have wrath towards sinners. Lord, we thank you for the gospel announcement that we now are light in the Lord. And we pray that by your spirit, you would cause us to forever forsake that which entangles us still today and that we would run headlong and we would give ourselves over to being led by your spirit. We, we thank you for this privilege. We ask you, Lord, that you would cause us to uh, see your son, Jesus Christ, and to run after him with everything that we have. In Jesus' mighty name, amen.